Well, welcome, and we're glad you could join us for this interesting night of large group at UGA RUF. This is Ben. I'm the campus minister at RUF, and I'm joining you from Redeemer here in Athens, where all of us normally are on a Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. And we're really putting our motto to the test tonight. You know, we've been saying for a while now that our desire as a ministry is to meet you where you are uh, and not leave you stuck there. And, you know, tonight we're meeting a lot of you on your nighttime jog and some of you from your parents' basement or you're sitting at your desk in your room from high school and trophies and letter jackets are on the wall or some of you are in lonely Athens apartments tonight. So we're scattered apart. But ironically, our circumstances tonight are perhaps more shared than they've ever been. Everybody is affected by this COVID-19 pandemic and all of the other ripple effects that it's blown up on our shores these past few days. But another thing that binds us together tonight is that our shared Savior speaks with us with one voice. And he locates one hope for us, too. And he calls us to one place, to himself. And so maybe in a way that we have not experienced before as a community, both in suffering and in salvation, we share most everything in common now. We've always shared that in common in terms of salvation, but we've all been at different places in the past. Some of us show up on Wednesday nights in a great place, some in a hard place, some doubting, some struggling, some excelling and growing by leaps and bounds, some passionate, some bored. But it is moments like this that get all of our attention almost equally and draw our thoughts to the Lord and what's going on. You should know that as long as this crisis continues and as long as UGA and, I mean, honestly, life as we know it is canceled, we'll be here for each other. And our unofficial motto these days is that though UGA is shutting down, RUF's ministry to you and through you isn't. It's going to continue, Lord willing, just in a way that none of us could have imagined even just seven days ago. Can you remember seven days ago, UGA had not even suspended classes for two weeks. Uh, So time is going very slow right now or very quickly, but it's a time warp nevertheless. A few quick announcements before we pray and look at a particular passage I wanted to share with you tonight. And this is just so you can stay engaged in the life of RUF in the coming weeks. If you're on the RUF Hangout group me, unmute it. Because there's going to be a lot of really important stuff getting posted there, uh, so far it hasn't been blowing up phones, and so uh, we hope to not do that and try not to do that to other people's phones. But In the coming days and weeks, we'll be continuing some of our regular ways of coming together. It's just going to happen virtually now. Community groups are going to continue meeting, and they'll start back next week. Uh, Freshman fellowship prayer groups started meeting last night. Had a great time. Thursday night prayer meeting is happening beginning tomorrow and every Thursday thereafter, starting at 7 o'clock. You should join them. And as the spring unfolds, we'll try to find our sweet spot. We don't want to do too much and pretend like this crisis isn't happening. And we don't want to do too little and leave people stranded, kind of making their own sense out of this and on their own, not being able to see each other. 
but it will take a little bit of a time for us to find a new rhythm and to kind of calibrate what's helpful to this community and what's not. So you should know that Zoom or Google Hangout links will be put in the GroupMe before any of these events happen, maybe 15, 30 minutes before the event happens. Check in the GroupMe, and there'll be a link there that you can hop on with. And finally, one last mention. Um, we'll be releasing weekly video updates to you, ideally every Monday. Those will be popping up on a unique web page that we've made just so that we can have kind of a clearinghouse, one place where everything related to kind of RUF during the coronavirus con um, crisis can be talked about. And it's uh, our one of our web pages, www.uga.ruf.org backslash coronavirus. On Mondays, you'll see a quick video update, just kind of a pastoral encouragement because this is a situation changing by the day and evolving dramatically by the day. Uh, we wanted to still be able to see each other and talk about those things. But we'll also be posting um, thoughts about different things uh, from the staff, from the interns, from many of you, as we kind of process this together and try to pull life and scripture into each other to make sense of this place that we're at now. And so keep an eye on that website in the coming days and weeks ahead as we navigate this moment together. Now, tonight, we do intend to pick up the Shattered Savior sermon series beginning next week. Again, Lord willing, things are changing so fast. That's our intention, though, is to begin where Trevor left off right before spring break, except now we would be in the Book of Ruth since we finished Judges. But given the events of the past week, I wanted to uh, look at a particular passage tonight that's not a part of our regular Shattered Saviors series. Some of you are running when you listen to this, you're in the car, so whatever, don't pick up your Bible right now. But for the rest of you who are sitting down or are able to pick up a paper Bible or your phone and turn it to Psalm 73 right in the middle of your Bible, that's we're not going to kind of look at every single verse in this psalm, but look at a particular a few places from this psalm, and there'll be a few other places throughout the Bible that I'll mention in the next few minutes, and we'll be done. But before I do that, uh, would you pray with me? Our Father, our ears seem to be tuned more to headlines and news and texts or calls. Did you hear this? Did you hear that? And our ears, my ears, can be rather deaf to your voice. And our eyes can see scenes on TV or shuttered stores in our town and no cars on the road or concerned friends on FaceTime, but our eyes can be rather blind to seeing your hand in the midst of this. So, Spirit of Jesus, we need your help. Open our eyes again and open our ears and soften our hearts. Lift our chins to heaven. Lift our chins to earth, that we might see you and your love. And remember that you are the redeeming God, the spirit of resurrection, the father of grace, even in this moment. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, I've called this sermon, Everything has Changed and Nothing has Changed. And those really are the two points that we want to talk about over the next few minutes. Everything has changed. And what are we supposed to do about that? And nothing has really changed. And what is that supposed to do for us? So first, everything has changed. And what are we supposed to do with that? 
I don't know if you've thought much about this. I imagine you have. But as I've talked to some of you the past few days, one of the things that inevitably the conversation turns to is, what did we talk about before coronavirus? Like, what did we even do? I can't even remember. I mean, me personally, I have trouble remembering what was on my mind, what were my priorities, what was what was I planning to do seven days ago before this just gobbled up and dominated all of our thinking and all of our days. And in a, in a, in a serious way, everything has changed in our lives and our worlds. I can't imagine another event that would touch every area of our lives the way this one has. Our shopping has changed. Simple, quick little trips to the grocery store have radically changed. Our relationship to toilet paper has changed. I don't know why, but it has. Exercise. Working out. Relating to each other. Like, even just bumping into people has changed. School has changed profoundly. Church. Worship. RUF. Social life. Your living situation. And for some of you, in really big ways, life has changed. I mean, I'm, I'm mentioning kind of inconvenience stuff on the front end here, but for some of you, you've already lost a job, and it's only been seven days since this has really impacted our town, our state. Almost overnight, job prospects or the economy that you seniors thought you were graduating into went from one of the best in American history to possibly one of the worst in American history. Some of you, uh, because of your own health situation or moms or dads or a brothers or a sisters, you have really kind of retreated into the confines of your house and you are in isolation for their sake or your sake. Everything has changed. Seniors are still probably trying to grapple with just psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually what just happened. I mean, you got an email the other day saying, not only are classes canceled in person, but graduation is canceled and you're not allowed back to campus. Freshmen too. Hard stuff. I was seeing some of you say goodbye to each other after the Puerto Rico trip at the baggage claim and I think I finally got it. I I anticipated this was devastating news for seniors, but I didn't yet anticipate how hard news this was for our freshmen until I saw you with tears in your eyes saying goodbye to each other. And this was supposed to be the sweet spot of freshman year and senior year and all of our years. I mean, we love spring semester because of March and April, right? And When you hear people, if you've processed this with your friends, it sounds like we're all at a funeral talking about a friend who died in an unexpected car wreck. The way that we're talking about this situation is, I didn't know that that was going to be my last time at fill in the blank. My last time seeing this friend or my last time at large Cooper, that that was my last, you know, intramural softball game at UGA or my last night in the dorm. And what all of these stories have in common is they're tied together by a theme of loss, a theme of grief. And this is where we see our present circumstances and our present story intersect with a priest named Asaph's story and his circumstances. Psalm 73 might be 
a passage or a psalm that's familiar to you. Perhaps there's lines or phrases out of it that you'll know when you scan through it. But without getting lost in the weeds of the different circumstances Asaph have, obviously he was not you know, the victim of a global pandemic at that particular moment in history, but Asaph's life was a life punctuated by loss. Asaph felt that he was missing out. He had had to let go of, or it had been taken out of his hands, this sweet season of life, this good season of life, a good time with God, a good time with just life unfolding and working the way it was supposed to. And something had happened to where now Asaph looked at his life and the way he thought his life was going to go. And there was such a growing disparity between his present circumstances And what he had assumed would happen in his story or his life, that he didn't know what to do with it. And he really grappled to know where is God in the midst of this disparity between what's going on now and what I thought should be happening or should be going on in my life. He says in Psalm 73, the verse, the first couple of verses, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, because of this disparity, because of the situation, the, the gap between how I thought God was going to act in my life or my story and how he actually is acting now, because of that gap, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, and I had almost fallen. Now, if you read the rest of Psalm 73, there were specific triggers for that attitude of heart in Asaph. And the triggers for him and the triggers for us are different, as I've mentioned. But his response and what cured him of that attitude of heart, that being in the fog and not knowing what to do with it, that just kind of deep sense of loss or bitterness or resentment that resulted from it, is very familiar with us either now or will be in the weeks ahead to you. Asaph is a life of, if you just look down through verses 4 through 15 or so, uh, Asaph's life feels like the pangs of death are around him. He is in trouble. He is stricken. He feels that he's been rebuked every morning. Every piece of his life is being disrupted in a way that he doesn't like and in a way that's very costly. And he wonders, In vain have I kept my heart clean? Have I washed my hands in innocence in vain? Has all of this stuff with RUF, has all of this stuff in the church or this pursuit of God, this good place that I was this spring in my community in Athens, was all of that futile? Was it in vain? Was it for no purpose? Because it doesn't seem to be bearing any fruit now and I don't understand why my present circumstances don't seem to fit spiritual thriving or being at a good place, especially the way I felt like I was. Asaph is complaining about his situation. He's human like you and me, and God did not see fit to share with Asaph all of the secret reasons, the mysterious reasons for why he was doing what he was doing or running the world the way he was running the world. And Asaph struggled to make sense of it. John Flavel is an old Puritan pastor, and he said, God's children are encouraged to complain to him, but never of him. We're allowed to complain to God, not about God or of God. 
because God is good. We'll see that in a little bit later in the passage. But one thing that Asaph, by God's mercy, had gotten right is that Asaph was directing his complaint to God. And I think for Asaph, it probably definitely slipped into complaining about God or complaining of God. He says later on in the psalm, I was like a brute beast when I was complaining about you and I did not understand But we are encouraged. Don't let that shy you away from complaining to God about these situations. How does a Christian respond uniquely? What's distinct about a Christian's response in this particular situation and in the weeks to come than a non-Christian's response? Well, you and I get to cast our anxieties somewhere. They don't have to stay local for you to deal with, for you and I to untangle. But we get to take them somewhere and cast them on someone to Throw them overboard onto God himself, he says in First Peter. Cast your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. Christians are people who tell God of their troubles. They are little sons and daughters who break into his oval office and climb up on his lap, unconcerned with how much is on his plate without a thought of whether he's distracted or not, but a surety that he will receive them. And they begin to tell him their troubles. Like when you're a little kid and you skin your knee and you run to your mom or your dad. Your mom or your dad are probably important or busy people. They have lots of responsibilities. But did you let that hinder you from instinctively running towards them and crying and telling them all about what had happened? Well, God is a father to his sons and daughters. And we have access to him. And he loves us. And so we get to tell him of our troubles, cast our anxieties upon him, complain to him about our situation. And you don't have to make it a rosy picture. You get to tell him the unvarnished read, the unvarnished uh, way that you're reacting to this situation. God welcomes that. I was helped by something I came across recently from Eugene Peterson. He's a name that you hear me talk about a lot. He wrote the Uh, his translation of the Bible, the message. And this is what Eugene Peterson says about prayer. And this is an encouragement to you, uh, an action item for you and I in the coming days, weeks, and months, and the rest of our lives. As we answer this question, uh, yes, everything has changed. What does that mean? So what? What are we supposed to do with that? Well, what we do with that is we pray when everything changes. We pray when disruption comes. We pray when troubles and anxieties and triggers and Scary things come. We pray when uncertainty comes. We pray when we can't see around the corner. But before you think that you need to become an expert in prayer, listen to Eugene Peterson. He says, when we engage in the act of prayer itself, there is no preparing. There's, there is no getting the right words, no posture to take and no mood that you need to assume. We simply do it. Prayer is primal speech. We don't first learn how to do it and then go proceed to do it. We just do it. And in the doing, in the praying, we find out what we are doing. And then it deepens and matures us in it. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes is thus the first sentence in the first prayer in the Psalms. Psalm 3, verse 1. It's brief. It's urgent. It's frightened words. It's a person in trouble crying out to God for help. And the language is personal and direct and desperate. And that is the language of prayer. Men and women calling out their trouble. 
pain, guilt, doubt, despair to God. Their lives and their circumstances are threatened. If they don't get help, they'll be dead or they'll be diminished to some critical degree. The language of prayer is forged in the crucible of trouble. When we can't help ourselves and call for help, when we don't like where we are and we want out, when we don't like who we are and we want to change, we use primal language. And this language becomes the root language of prayer. So friends, as we begin to get our feet underneath us and launch a response to what has happened to us and what's happening to those around us and in our world this week, and you say and you, you, your knees buckle under how much has changed so quickly, and you say, what am I supposed to do? What, what do I do with this? You pray. You cast your troubles and your anxieties. You talk to God about your situation and you bring it to him, not with preparation, not with formality, not with prior study, but simply primal speech between you and God. Look, I imagine not all of us are at a place where we just feel these primal words leaping out of our souls and our hearts to God, but some of you are. I know some of you seniors are really struggling right now with, I mean, you feel like you got robbed. There might be resentment or bitterness or even you might even put the label anger at God uh, because of what you, what you've experienced, what's been taken from you, some freshmen too. Um, I would imagine as this situation develops over time and the cost, the economic cost, the physical cost, perhaps the spiritual cost of being far from your community and your church, as that rises upon us and pushes down on us, perhaps these primal words of desperation will leap out of our hearts more. But regardless of where you are at the moment, we see this in Psalm 73, Asaph is speaking primally not with preparation, not with formality, but primally to his God. And so one thing that you can do when you look up to a world or a life or a situation or circumstances that everything has changed in, and you say, what am I supposed to do? Friends, you get to pray. You get to cast your troubles and anxieties upon the Lord. But we see something else in Psalm 73 that's interesting, and I do think applies to our situation in this particular moment that we find ourselves in. And it's something that Asaph himself uh, identifies in his own heart. He diagnoses himself. Verse 21 and 22, he says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Again, I don't want to get lost in the weeds of Asaph's specific situation because I'm trying to apply Psalm 73 to our present moment. But what you should know about Asaph and what he was going through is that life was happening. Stuff was happening to Asaph. Important things in his life were getting canceled, just like in our lives. We're being disrupted. Beautiful, precious things he was losing. And he had drawn a conclusion from that that God had abandoned him, that God was not good, that God had stolen from him or, or, or taken from him without restoring. 
And what Asaph identifies in verse 21 and 22, he says, I was like an animal when I was embittered, when I was pricked at heart, when I had grown bitter towards you, God, when I, when I had complained not to you, but about you, complained of you because of the situation that I was in. I was like an animal. And the reason that's problematic is because Asaph had, had misinterpreted reality. Asaph had seen the data. He had seen the troubles that were happening, the scary things that were coming at him, and he had drawn the wrong conclusion from that, that God did this evil. He's doing these bad things, or he's asleep at the wheel, or he doesn't care. And if you've been watching the news, this has to have crossed your mind at some point, or at least the open question arised over your brain of, God, what are you doing? Where are you? How is this an optimal ending to my UGA career? Or I felt like I was really hitting my stride spiritually at church or in RUF this spring, and now church is gone except for these weird live streams, and RUF's not a part of my life except for all these Zoom calls. Like, how is this optimal? Or other things in life are still falling apart. It's not like the rest of our lives take a break just because there's a pandemic. And God, I needed my community. I needed my rhythms in life. And all these things are falling away. This is bad. That's how we can interpret our situation. We can draw a conclusion and say, this is bad. This is going to harm me in an existential way. This is going to set me back. This is, this is bad. What God, what you're doing is bad. Even worse, God, what you're doing is wrong. And these are the ways where I think we need to hold our understanding, our interpretation of what's happening in our lives and in the world with an open hand because, friends, we just don't know. We don't have all the information. You know, all the news reports that we hear, all the anecdotes friends share with you, did you hear about this? Did you hear what so-and-so said? They're necessarily inherently out of context. Because all we're getting is this kind of horizontal data, reports from on the ground, but we are missing the big perspective that these reports are happening inside of, and we're missing the bigger context of what's going on. You know, our eyes tend to see um, hard circumstances out of context. I was thinking today, having to look at this passage and think about it, I was like, I don't know where this idea came from, but just came to my head. How amazing and incredible the human eye is. I have an Android phone and I love my phone, but one problem with my phone is it like it takes three or four seconds for my phone's camera to um, to focus on objects. You know, I know you iPhone users, uh, you don't have that problem as much, but even even the cutting edge technology that we have in our lives takes a second or two to change between objects far away and objects nearby. And the human eye can do it effortlessly without any thought or intentionality with lightning speed. My eye can dart over to something a mile away and see it in focus, and it can dart back to my finger in front of my face and immediately see it in focus. And it's brilliant. And there's nothing that matches it in the technology world. The agility of the eye to see in focus objects both far away and nearby. Now, when there's a problem with that and your eyes can't see things far away in focus or things nearby in focus, we call that a vision problem, right? And you've got to get glasses or contacts to fix that problem. And so those of us who might be 
nearsighted can only see that finger in front of your eye in focus, but not the object on the horizon and vice versa for those of you who are farsighted. Now here's the thing and here's the connection to this passage. Gospel faith. Eyes that are open to Jesus and eyes that are really open to reality, the way the world really is, are like human eyes that don't need corrective vision. Healthy human eyes can see things both far away and nearby, immediate circumstances and big picture at the same time, or they can dart between the two with lightning speed. Friends, that is faith. To be able to see and acknowledge and name and groan about, complain about, express your current circumstances. We've already talked about that, right? God invites you to see what is nearby, what you're up to your eyeballs in, what hurts, what disrupts you, what scares you. Faith sees that and is honest about it. And I think some of us need to grow in and crying out to God, expressing what is bothering us instead of bottling it up and it becomes anger. So faith both does that. It speaks to God. It names it, verbalizes it, launches it, casts it out on him. But it also sees present circumstances in the bigger picture, in proper context of reality. And this is what Asaph himself says. He says, when I was trying to understand my present circumstances, verse 16, I was trying to make sense of the loss of graduation, the loss of freshman year, the loss of sophomore and junior year, or my internship, the loss of my health, the loss of my job, the loss of stability and predictability in my life, the loss of an economy. I tried to understand it, and it seemed to me a wearisome task, and otherwise it broke my brain. I couldn't figure it out until I went into the house of God. Then I discerned. Then the lights came back on. Then faith was able to see simultaneously my circumstances against the backdrop of all the circumstances, of all of reality, which is the gospel, friends, which is the gospel. And that's the second and last point that we we end our thoughts on Psalm 73 on tonight. The gospel is reality, or you could say reality. The way the world really is, is that it is a world that is being redeemed and renewed by its maker at his cost and at his initiative. That's reality. You know, sometimes people say things like, oh, you need a reality check. You're naive or you're wishful thinking. You need a reality check. And in that phrase or that pushback, there's an assumption that reality is the bad stuff. And if you think that there's hope for the world or goodness in the world or a bright, sunny future for God's people and what he's doing in the world, then you're the naive one. But it's the reverse, Reality is shot through with hope and joy and promise. Reality is interrupted and has been interrupted by a redeeming and invading God who will not let death or sadness or disruption or poverty or loss or grief or death or sickness interrupt his plans for this place and his people. 
reality is a fairy is more like a fairy tale than a nightmare, friends. What's a nightmare is reality out of context. Some of you have read that Andy Crouch article this week that's been going around like crazy, and he said the best definition of anxiety he's ever heard is imagining a future without Jesus. Friends, reality taken out of context, that's a doom and gloom scenario. That's a nightmare scenario. That's a future I don't want to live. But the only reality that there is and the only world that there is is a world that God at his own expense and own initiative has bled and died for to redeem and remake and to expunge and eradicate and conquer all of the things that are threats to our bodies and our souls and our communion with him. That is reality. And that reality has not changed in light of any of the news of the past few months, nor will it change or shake or alter or crack at all in the news of the days and the weeks and the years to come. Asaph saw this and it brought him great joy. When you and I see it, when we remember not the sinking sand of the headlines all around us, but the rock of Jesus and his love for this world and his sure redemption of his people. It will be like for us waking up from a nightmare. In verse 20, Asaph says, like a, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, Asaph is saying, it was like I woke up from a nightmare to, to, to a dream in the best sense of the word. I finally woke up. I was roused out of my sleep and my slumber where I was not seeing the world the way it actually is. And now in your sanctuary, I have beheld God again. I've been reminded that the truest truth there is, is a good truth, a good news. And I've woken up and now I see it. And and immediately hope begins to come back into the picture. Stability Life, joy, contentment, even though his situation didn't change. Circumstances didn't change for Asaph. Not much really changed in his life except his inner attitude because his eyes opened up and faith began to simultaneously be able to perceive what is both far away and big picture and what is nearby an immediate circumstance. And the evidence is immediate. Nevertheless, Asaph says, I am continually with you. You, Father, you in this moment hold my hand in the loss of senior year and graduation or freshman year, internship, money, parents' situation is crumbling. In the loss of those things, nevertheless, I am with you and you hold my right hand. You guide me and you will receive me to this new heavens and new earth that you are making. And he goes on and he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In other words, he's saying in heaven and on earth, there is nothing that is better than you. Nothing that is sweeter than you. You're the maker of every gift that I've loved and the giver of every gift that has brought joy to my heart. And I love you more than the gifts you have given. And there's more joy that I have in you than the joy that's come from the things that you've given me. Even in the loss of all the gifts, even in the loss of all the things that I've loved, my heart and my flesh themselves, they may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. He is the rock of my heart, it says in Hebrew, the rock of my heart, and he is my portion, my cup, 
my sustenance, my food, my life forever. That is what Asaph says. That is true reality. That is that is the eyes of faith properly working. They can see the big picture, the truest reality and the smaller realities, the big truth and the little truths. My circumstances and all the circumstances put together and faith comes back and joy comes back and courage comes back and love comes back and joy comes back. And friends, I'll tell you that dual perspective, that dual-eyed faith, far-sighted and nearsighted, of remembering that nothing has really changed even though everything has changed. That is what propelled the church through the centuries to stand on its feet and to get busy living its life and loving its neighbor and trusting her God throughout the ages. It was in the first or second century that smallpox plagues wiped out the population of Rome and the church remained present loving her neighbor, caring for the sick, and worshiping together. It was cholera outbreaks in the 1800s in London that the evangelical church continued to worship as health-appropriate ways allowed and took care of the sick and served the city. It's the black church throughout much of its history in the West being persecuted and oppressed and enslaved and still worshiping, gathering, loving, and serving. It's the Chinese church or the Indian church today being persecuted by the authorities, losing life and property, and yet still going out confidently in that seemingly dangerous place. Because they have remembered, though everything is changing, though we are losing, nothing has changed. And there is one in heaven who has given himself for me to reconcile me to the Father forever, to let me have a place, have a seat at the table, have a part, have a role in the new heavens and the new earth, a place where sickness is not allowed admittance and death is not invited, and a place where sadness has no place and no part. That's reality, friends. We must in these days cry out and cast our troubles on the Lord and be specific about our situation and our sense of loss. We must pray to God And we must pray to him, not just to complain to him, but to ask him for the eyes of faith, to see his hand again. Though we have lost many things, would he teach us that we never really needed anything but him to begin with? And we must pray to him for these eyes of faith and this courage and this love and this hope that we would be like stars in this dark moment that others would look to and say, what is up with that guy or that girl? They've lost all the rhythms of their life, and they seem to be not just surviving, but somehow thriving. Friends, we should expect God to restore what the locust of COVID-19 has eaten. You should expect him to bring rivers of water and desert places of isolation and social distancing. And we should expect him to be God, a lover and redeemer of sinners, a reconciler of those far off a father to the orphan. We should expect these things because he says this is who he is. And that is your hope. Next week, we pick this story up in the book of Ruth as we see God doing this in individuals' lives. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would open our eyes. We are pretty good, maybe too good at seeing what is right in front of our face. But when we fail to see you, 
when we fail to remember your promises, fail to remember that every day the sun rises is a day of salvation, a day of repentance, that you are calling people to return to yourself and to be washed in your love. We pray that we would have eyes to see that and that that perspective, that context would alleviate the panic and anxiety and the fears, the sense of doom or the sense of loss or being robbed that we feel in our immediate circumstances. Lord Jesus, bring this epidemic to an end. Issue your commands and your orders for it to cease causing suffering and sadness and death. But as it may linger and as you may allow it to linger for your mysterious purposes, build your church up, build us in faith and bring many into the household of faith through conversion and through salvation. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.